Hello and welcome. You are listening to the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our hope that you will be encouraged and that your desire to follow Jesus Christ will be challenged and strengthened as you listen to this podcast. For more information on location, service times, and what to expect on your next visit, go to coastaloakschurch.org. Now, grab your Bible and study along with us as you listen. If you have your Bible open to Judges chapter 6 and 7, enough about me, but I do appreciate you dads. Stay in the fight, men. Fight for your families, but that's not what today is about. That's your Father's Day message. There you go. We're talking about Gideon, good old Gideon. Gideon, uh, in the book of Judges, um, is a man who um, is called of the Lord to accomplish big things. Um, but it's not because of who Gideon is of why God calls him. We'll get there in a minute. When I started playing football, the game of football, fell in love with it, uh, in seventh grade, uh, there in little bitty George West, uh, we had this thing called the cage. I hated it. Uh, I learned on the first day of pads, um, one, why you wear the helmet. You wear the helmet not because you're hitting other players, but because of the cage. Well, this thing, it stands about that tall off the ground, and it's oil-filled pipe because you're in George West, and that's what you do. And it's painted blue, and, and you, you, you know, your coaches are trying to teach you how to get down in your stance, and I'm not going to do that because I may not get up, uh, but you, you have to get down in your stance, and they go, hut, you know, and then you run through the cage. The point is, you got to stay low. If you come up, guess what happens? You hit your head on the pipe, and it hurts. And it leaves a really cool blue mark on your helmet, but then the coach knows, and everybody knows, that you hit your head on the pipe. And what did you do? You failed to stay low. You came up too high. It didn't matter how big or small you were. I learned on day one, keep your head down and stay low. Sometimes, oftentimes, when we're following Jesus, we get the tendency to think too highly of ourselves. We don't stay low, humble, and meek. And when we think too highly of ourselves, we tend to lose leverage. The leverage we have of following Jesus, that Jesus is fighting our battles. You see, exalting yourself, thinking too highly of yourself, is never in God's playbook for those who follow Jesus. Never. Too much of yourself, and you make the mistake that Israel made every time in the book of Judges, is that you'll attempt to be like God and to do what is right in your own eyes. And when that happens, the discipline of God comes upon your life, he will make it very clear that he is God alone. Jesus taught his disciples this very truth in Matthew chapter 18, verse 4, where he said, whoever humbles himself like this child this one is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. James picked up on that and wrote in his letter to the church, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. It's not in God's playbook for us to exalt ourselves, but rather we are to humbly follow him as he leads. In Judges chapter six and seven, looking at the story of Gideon, this is, Gideon is one of God's chosen deliverers for Israel. The whole story of Judges, all 21 chapters, is about uh, men and Deborah who God calls out 
to lead his people out of oppression of a, time, of a certain time of oppression. They're all deliverers. So don't make the mistake when you hear judges that they're judging Israel or like they're sitting with a black robe and a gavel and bang, bang, you're guilty. All right, next court case, you know, file on the docket. That's not what it is. That judge is more like a deliverer. Someone God calls up and out of whatever circumstance they're in, wherever they are in their life at the time, and he says, you are the one that's gonna deliver my people from the oppression that they're in. You've got Deborah, I've already mentioned. Gideon, Samson is another famous one. My favorite one is Ehud and Eglon. Now, that's a great story. I'm not gonna preach it this morning. I've preached that before, but you go read it. It's somewhere in uh, chapter three and four, I think. Uh, Go read it and call when you have questions about what happened to the dagger. That's all I'm gonna say. You gotta read that one for yourself. It's a great story, and it might just be my theme for our fall uh, trunk or treat. I don't know. I'm still trying to figure out how to work that one. You'll figure it out when you get there. Let me give you a big bird's eye picture, though, of the book of Judges. The theme we find in chapter 17, and it's repeated in chapter 21. If you go to chapter 17, verse 6, here's the theme of the Judges' story. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did whatever seemed right to him. Chapter 21, verse 25, the last verse of the the story of of this book. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did whatever seemed right to him. What you'll find in the story of the judges is a series of epic failures. Epic failures. An epic failure is simply defined as a complete and total failure when success was reasonably easy to attain. A complete and total failure when success was reasonably easy to attain. To attain. All Israel had to do was to worship the Lord and obey his word. They had the game plan. It was all given to them at Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments. They had the law. It was all there. But that is not what happened. Each story, especially the longer narratives, because there are some short narratives, some short uh, mentions of, of of some judges that we just don't have much information on, but they're mentioned as a judge, like Gideon or Samson, we have a longer narrative of their stories. But, but in each one, we'll see that there's a framework, all right? It's called the judge's cycle. And it's a cycle of sin, repentance, and salvation, and then back into sin. It goes like this. First, Israel will stray, and the Bible says, will do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Israel does evil and worships Baals, false gods, okay? Second, God will become angry, not sinful angry, holy in his anger, and will hand Israel over to an enemy nation for oppression. That's the system of discipline that he's put in place. He told them that's what would happen if they strayed. It's not like they're doing this in ignorance. They know what's going to happen. It's in his word. He told them it would happen. Third step, Israel will cry out for help. Sometimes it's instant, sometimes it takes a series of years. In Gideon's story, it was seven long years of oppression by Midian before they started crying out for help. The fourth step is that God will raise up or call out a judge or deliverer who will then free Israel from the enemy. God will use that deliverer to free Israel from oppression. And then the last step is how the cycle continues is that Israel 
after a time of prosperity, will again fall back into idolatry and doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Friends, I would submit to you that we are in the same kind of time frame today and the same kind of mindset today. When we look at our culture around us, there is nothing new under the sun. We are, this world is full of people who still do whatever seems right to them. That's where we are. Sadly, though, even in the church, we have people and sometimes we have churches or so-called churches that are doing whatever is right in their own eye. Friend, if Christ is not king of your life, you will go and do whatever you seem, uh, do what you think is right. And if, he's not Christ, if Christ is not king of the church, then the church will do what is right in its own eyes. Christ must be king. That's the problem here. There is no king. There is no leader. And if we do not submit ourselves to the leadership of Christ and his headship over the church, then we will be a church doing what is right in our own eyes. That is a dangerous, unseen current that will pull you out to sea. Dr. Jim Dennison of the Dennison Forum, I'd encourage you to look that up. Jim Dennison, D-E-N-I-S-O-N. He has written a book called The Coming Tsunami. Uh, Dr. Dennison is a, is a theologian. Um, he writes about current events and how it relates to a biblical worldview. It's very, uh, very quality stuff that he puts out. I'm about halfway through this book, it, but he tells a story in the introduction when he was a boy. It just kind of helps set the scene uh, for us. And he, he was at the beach, and his mother had warned him not to go too far out because there were riptides that day. Now, what, do you, what happens when little boys are told not to do something? They go and do it. Surely enough, he got caught in one. But his mother had taught him and reminded him how to get out of it, that you don't swim against the riptide, the rip current. You swim parallel to it until you're out. And of course, he did that. And in the struggle, he remembered what his mom had taught him. But he says this. He says, I'll always remember the power of the unseen current. Friends, there is an unseen current that wages war against our hearts and our lives when we're called to follow Jesus. It is the thought of elevating ourselves above him. But the Bible says that it's not by might or strength, my might or even my strength, but by the Spirit of the Lord, right? That's where we find victory. That's where we overcome. And, and the conviction and the principles that we come to in this life is that we stand on the truth of God's word. We stand on the power of his presence in our life. That is made known to Jesus' followers in the presence of the Holy Spirit, and it is his power at work within us. Friends, as a church, we cannot please the world and God. You cannot please light and dark. When it comes to light, the darkness flees. That's what the scriptures teach us, and yet we understand that what we find here in Israel, is they're, they're trying to please both at times. And, and when you try to do that, you're going to go to the, to the world every time. We are, when we come to, to following Christ, we understand that we're not saved by Christ to live how we see that everything right in our own eyes. Jesus didn't save me so that I can go and live my own truth. That's not what he did. If I could make it in this life and make it to eternal life by living according to what I see is right or living by my own truth, then I would not need Jesus. 
and God would judge me whether or not, whether or not uh, I, I live true to my own truth. That's such a bunch of goobly got. There's no standard there. My standard would be different than your standard. But the standard is here, and the standard that is right and true and holy is God's standard. That's what he has given, and Israel had that standard. He, they, they had it in their possession. So doing what is right in my eyes is not God's standard. That's my standard. And if I live according to my standard and not God's standard, that's going to be sin every single time, and the wages of sin is death. But God's standard, his truth, leads to freedom. His truth is the way. And that standard, of course, was bought and paid for by Jesus because the scripture teaches us in the Gospel of John that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Oh, well, I mean, Jesus ate with sinners, you might say. Well, he absolutely did eat with sinners. But nowhere in the Gospels is it ever recorded that he ate with sinners and said to them, stay the way you are, be true to yourself. God bless He never did that. What did he say? Go and sin no more. When Zacchaeus had dinner with him that night, Zacchaeus didn't go on being crooked, taking people's money. What did he do? He started giving it back. And then some. That's the difference Jesus makes in our life. He changes our life. But Israel, like I said, had received that standard. They weren't supposed to be doing what was right in their own eyes. They were supposed to be following God's standard. But they could not and did not. And because we do not, they, like we, need a savior. And so that's what these deliverers or judges that you read about are like. But the ones we read about are not enough. They all fall short some way or another. We always hear the story about Gideon, the fleece and all those great things and 300 men are left, and they surround the camp of the Midianites without a single sword being thrown at a Midianite. The Midianites fall. God's hand at work. We don't always pick up the end of the story where Gideon falls short again. We know Samson falls short again. What we find is, though in the moment the judges are, are used by God, they are not the standard. That's because Jesus is the standard. But they all point us to the fact that we needed the greater Jesus Christ. That's the lone bright story about the the judge's epic, if you will, is that when all else seems hopeless and Israel is oppressed for however many years it is, the only hope is offered by the grace of God. The only hope is that God steps in to intervene even when they don't deserve it. And that's what we find today in Jesus is that his grace abounds to us, the chief of sinners, and that they too, we too live for his glory. That's his glory at work. So we'll look uh, this morning at chapter six and chapter seven, and we find real quick in verse one, the Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord handed them over to Midian seven years, and they oppressed Israel. Because of Midian, the Israelites made hiding places for themselves in the mountains, caves, and strongholds. The prosperity of Israel is gone. If you go back to verse 31, of chapter five, the very end of that verse, you read this line, this sentence, and the land had peace for 40 years. A whole generation, Israel was at peace. Now that's after another deliverer had come and freed them from oppression. They have that time period where there's peace and there's prosperity. Israel is doing all that she should be doing. And yet 
The cycle starts over again in verse one. The Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. That always starts the cycle. And so there's a time of judgment, a time of discipline, a time of oppression. The Lord hands them over to Midian. Sometimes it's the Midianites. Other times you get to Samson, it's the Philistines. But there's always the oppression at play. Here's what would happen. The Midianites and some other people, they would wait till the crops of Israel had grown, the herds were strong again, and then they'd come in and ransack everything. They'd steal the crops, steal the animals, take it all back with them. And so Israel was left. And if you look at verse six, it says Israel became poverty stricken because of Midian. And the Israelites cried out to the Lord. Their prosperity is gone. They're in the land flowing with milk and honey. They're in the land that was supposed to provide everything they needed. They're in the promised land. And yet here the Midianites are poverty stricken, which leads them to cry out to God. In verse seven, There's no sense of repentance here. It says, when the Israelites cried out to him because of Midian, the Lord sent a prophet to them. Now, this prophet is not going to deliver them. He's just telling them the truth. Here is why you are in the situation you find yourself in. There's not, again, they're, they're crying out because of Midian, not necessarily because of their sin. You look at the end of verse seven, excuse me, the end of verse 10. He goes through that whole A whole speech, I brought you out of Egypt. I rescued you from Egypt, from the power of Egypt. I drove you out before and gave you their land, the people in front of you, and gave you their land. Verse 10, I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites whose land you live in. Here's the kicker. But you did not obey me. When it comes to this kind of situation, and you may find yourself stuck in a sin this morning, you may find yourself in that place where there's no victory over that sin in your life. Well, let me tell you, it starts with repentance, not regret. God desires a repentant heart amongst his people. So we have to ask, you have to ask yourself, am I sorry because of the consequences of my sin, because I got caught Am I sorry from the loss of the pleasure of an idol or the damage that is done to the relationship with God? Am I repenting because I infringed upon the holiness of God? That's what ought to break our heart. God is always one who provides a way out, and by his grace and his mercy, he provides that way of forgiveness for us through repentance and confession. Repentance is the way not regret. There's always two pathways to take when we're confronted with sin, repentance or regret. The Bible makes a distinction between the two. They're very similar. They look similar, but the end result is very different. Second Corinthians, Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 says, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, but worldly grief produces death. The brokenness that comes from God is characterized by repentance. That kind of conviction that comes on you, it's not the preacher stepping on your toes, there's something else at play. That grief comes from God, it leads you to repentance. And it comes by the the fact that you realize that you've lost God's approval and the resolve 
You resolve then to reverse your conduct and live for God. That's what repentance looks like to illustrate it. Oh, I'm going the wrong way. I need to make a U-turn and go the right way, which is that way leads to sin and is sin and death. This way leads to life. I've got to turn away, change the thought, change the process here, change my mind and my heart. No longer look to sin as what's going to uh, fulfill my life and, and bring wholeness and bring life, eternal life. But there is one over here named Christ Jesus who gave his life for me. I need to turn my life this way and repent and turn away from and turn to Christ. That's repentance. But worldly grief, grief that comes from the world, is a brokenness or a sadness because you've lost the world's approval. And it leads to a resolve to try to regain that approval. So that's what the cycle of sin keeps digging deeper and deeper, and it produces death. Both bring deep sorrow, both bring distress, but they're very different. Repentance brings about change in your life. Regret does not. And here, at least up until verse 10, there seems to be only regret. Crying out because of Midian, not because of the brokenness of their heart over the fact that they have sinned against God. Well, here we are in verse 11, and we find that God is going to reach out anyway. And if God would do this, if he would call out a deliverer, if he would call out a judge, it is only by his gracious act to do so. And that's what he does. The angel of the Lord came and he sat under this oak tree, which belonged to Joash, verse 11. His son Gideon was threshing wheat in the wine press in order to hide it from the Midianites. We have a farmer named Gideon. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, the Lord is with you, valiant warrior. <laughs> kind of a play on words there for a moment. He's a farmer hiding threshing his wheat in a place called the wine press. You understand what they make in a wine press? It's not where you thresh wheat. He should be outside doing that, where the wind can blow the chaff away from the seed, from the kernel. But he's in a wine press, hiding what is there from the Midianites. He's hiding. That's exactly, if you look back a few verses, that's what they all did. They made hiding places for themselves in the mountains, caves, and strongholds. This is exactly where we find Gideon. And as this messenger of the Lord appears to him. In verse 13, he says, please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why has all of this happened? And where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about? They said, hasn't the Lord brought us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to Midian. Oh, that God's grace is reaching out to deliver his people. If you look into this part of chapter six, verses 11 to the end, you'll see God's presence versus Gideon's faith. Verse 12, Gideon, actually three times in this brief passage, God promises Gideon his presence. The Lord is with you. The Lord is with you. The Lord will be with you. Verse 11, he says, calls him a mighty man of valor, hiding out. Yet again, God is with you. In this, in this part of Gideon's life, God's promise is valor and victory. Gideon doesn't exactly know what that looks like, but he hears that phrase, mighty man of valor. God's presence is simply that, I am with you. His provision is God's got an army and he's gonna work his 
He's gonna do his work through that army. His power is that God is gonna fight that battle. Again, the Bible says, not by might nor by strength, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And that is exactly what will happen in the camp around the Midianites. But Gideon had something to say. God, where are you? Why is all of this happening? Why have you left us? I think Gideon's got a shortfall on his knowledge of the word of God, the covenant that God had made to not leave his people. He's got a shortfall in the perception of God's involvement in the life of his people. Why have you left us? God never left. The people left. And that's what sin does to you, friends. Sin causes blinders and prohibits that relationship with God. It stunts your growth in, into Christ's likeness. And then even Gideon, just like Moses, has a shortfall in his willingness to serve. If you'll see there in verse 15, the Lord's messenger says, goes to him, says, go in the strength you have and deliver Israel from the grasp of Midian. I am sending you. Please, Lord, Gideon said, how can I deliver Israel? My family is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the youngest in my father's family. That sounds similar to what Moses said. And yet he was just saying, God, where are you in this? And now God is saying, Gideon, I'm right here. I'm with you. Now go, free my people. But how can I? See, we tend to see, Tim Keller pointed out, he said, we tend to see our troubles as evidence that God has left us instead of asking, God, how are you at work in this? Romans chapter eight, verse 28 says, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. We get into a a bind. Sometimes it's our own doing, but sometimes it's a test of our faith. But we think, why has God left me in all of this? Where is God in this? And we need to be asking God, seeking him first, asking God, how are you at work in this for your glory and our good? Because sometimes a trial comes, and that trial or that test is a test of faith. It's a test to help you grow into Christ-likeness. That test brings about a maturity of the faith. So we need, you need, to develop that discipline of your life. It's standing back and asking God like the psalmist did, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Search me, O God, and know my heart. When was the last time you prayed that? Psalm 139. Second thing Keller pointed out was we often wait for God to do something for us or to us. Lord, why don't you remove this problem? That's Gideon's excuse. How can I? My family's the weakest, my clan's the weakest, I'm the youngest in the family. How can I? Gideon's excuses don't change God's intent. God is intent on Gideon being that man, that judge, that deliverer. You see, here's the thing. Gideon is not chosen because he is a man of valor. He's chosen because God graciously chose him. God will make him a man of valor. Gideon admits, I'm the weakest. I'm from the lowest family, the smallest clan, the least significant tribe. Come on, God, you've got to be mistaken. 
God doesn't make mistakes. He was God's man. And Gideon is reassured with the same promise that Moses and Joshua received. I will be with you. You see, that promise of God's presence to be with his people and with us today reassures us and brings us God's peace. God's presence reassures of God's peace. That's what chapter, uh, uh, verse 20 through 32 is. Gideon goes through a series of questions and, and, and seeking out God's, God, God's truth, what God, what God is calling him to. In verse 20, he's still a bit unaware of who he's talking to. And so he provides this meal, he's, this meat and this unleavened bread, and he, he brings it to the Lord's messenger. And the angel of, of God takes the meat and they, they, they put it on this altar. And then the angel of the Lord extended the tip of his staff, verse 21, with his right hand, touched the meat and the unleavened bread, and it's gone. It's consumed. And then the angel of the Lord vanished from Gideon's sight. Look at verse 22. When Gideon realized that he was the angel of the Lord, he said, oh no, Lord God, I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. He's afraid of death. Right here, right now, he is absolutely expecting to die. Why? The holiness of God. When our sin is confronted by the holiness of God, that's why we read the wages of sin is death. But in this moment, again, God's grace and his mercy come back full circle to Gideon and God speaks to him in verse 23. The Lord said to him, peace to you, don't be afraid for you will not die. Shalom. So Gideon builds an altar. This is the first altar. He builds an altar to the Lord there and he called it the Lord is peace. Yahweh Shalom. Yahweh Shalom. That's what God's grace and his presence do. He brings peace in the oppression. He brings peace in the trial, peace in the struggle, peace in the test, peace in the storm. He doesn't remove the storm, but he makes, it, he makes your way through it. God's presence reassures us of God's peace. The other altar, Gideon is asked to tear down. It's an altar to the Baals and the Asherah pole, which is a thing that they would celebrate around and worship as well. Think, um, think like uh, similar to what we understood uh, as totem poles, different images of different gods all around, and they would dance around and hoop and holler and, and use that as an act of worship as well. But it's in his father's home. That's the kicker. His own dad had built an altar to the Baals and the Asherah pole, and God is calling out Gideon to tear them down. What you find here is that they worship God formally, but their lives would revolve around other idols. Boy, don't we do that. We come and worship God formally on a Sunday, but the rest of the week we struggle, sometimes even get into those other idols. But even before Gideon can deal with the Midianites, he had to deal with the sin of Israel, and that's where it gets real. Gideon had to deal with that sin. And he gets a new name, not from, not from God, but from the people, because he does exactly what God said. He tore down the, Baal, the, the, the altar and the asherah pole, and then at the end of verse 32, they call him a new name, Jerubabel, or Jerubabel. All right, let Baal contend with him. Like, oh, we're just gonna hand him over to Baal. 
But the amazing thing here is that it's not that Baal is going to contend with Gideon. The amazing thing is that it is God who is contending with Baal for the hearts of his people. And God's going to win that every time. I would love, to, if I had time, to go into the signs of the fleeces. We're going to move through that this morning, but um, I'll just say this. I don't, I don't think that's a, a method on how to make a decision. God reveals to Gideon that he is sovereign over creation in that. It's a reassurance for Gideon, all right? My, my take on that was um, like the man who asked Jesus to help his brother. Jesus, if, if you can do anything, heal my son, not his brother, his son. Jesus, if you can, heal my son. Jesus like, if I can. Everything's possible. And at the end of that, the man asked Jesus, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. I think that's that kind of moment for Gideon here. Help my unbelief. We need to understand, church, that every promise, every one of God's promises is yes in Jesus Christ. Absolutely. And so we get to chapter seven, the end of, well, the middle of the story. It's gonna be the end of the story for us today, but we just simply see that less is more. The time has come for the battle. Having received the confirmation of God's faithfulness, God's presence, the battle is on. It is on. The army is mustered. It's gathered 30,000 fighting men, you know, like William Wallace. He's gathered there before his troops. I'm going to pick a fight, you know, and he's ready. They're painted up and they got all their garb ready. And God says, uh, <clears throat> wait a minute, sir, your army is too big. Say what? Yeah, your army is too big. Look at verse two. You have too many troops for me to hand the Midianites over to them. Or else Israel, oh, back to that whole sin thing. Or else Israel might elevate themselves over me and say, my own strength save me. Following Jesus, the key is always humility. Always humility. Stay low, stay low, stay low. God says, you got too many. You got too many. So the first, the first way to weed some of them out is, uh, all right, Whoever's afraid, whoever's scared, whoever's trembling, they can go home. 22,000 of those troops that had gathered were afraid. Now, if Gideon had gone in his own strength, look what would have happened. They would have been slaughtered. 22,000 of them would have run off even before the battle started. That leaves 10,000, all right? Round two, God says, nope, it's too many. We had 30, now we got 10 we lost two-thirds of the army. Okay, now what? No, no, God says, you take them to the water. If they're down on all fours drinking like a dog, they're out. If they drink with a cupped hand, they're in. Okay, well, we're not heathens, right? We're, we're, we're good people. We'll drink the right way. 9,700 are out. That leaves with 300. 300 men remain. That is a God-sized army. And not one sword will fall on a Midianite. Not one Israelite sword will hit a Midianite. The Midianites, their own swords, will take care of themselves. But it doesn't make sense, does it? It doesn't, but here's the truth. The minute that we take credit for ourselves and think that we can deliver ourselves, we believe a lie and we take the glory from God. And so an altar then is set up to self-worship and we are worshiped and not God. That glory belongs to him. That is a grave danger. That is that dangerous undercurrent, unseen current that is always there. That when we start believing that this whole salvation thing happens because of us, something about me, that we could save ourselves, then you've got a, a gathering of people that would call themselves a church, thinking that it's all about themselves. And suddenly you've got everyone doing what is right in their own 
eyes. Friends, there's nothing of salvation that belongs to me, but human nature, our sin nature, is there. That if there's just the slightest opportunity to boast in our own work, we take it, and we will. But think of Gideon for a moment. Let's compliment him. He's assured God's answer is yes. His faith is in God, not in the numbers. He's doing exactly what God is leading him to. He's being faithful in this moment. Church, we make a big deal out of budgets, buildings, and butts, but God is concerned with our faith. He's concerned with our heart. He's concerned with what's happening in here and in our minds. And so that reduction in force that we find with Gideon causes a couple of things. It accomplishes a couple of things. One, it's going to be complete glorification for God when the battle is over. Two, it exposed Gideon's fear and how God would intend to use him or to, to lead Israel. Three, Israel will not be able to take credit for the battle because that belongs to the Lord. Let's sum this up this morning is just simply this. Our weakness and his strength, that's where it is. That's God's playbook. Our weakness, his strength. He uses the weak things, the foolish things of the world to shame the wise and the strong. Our weakness, his strength, all because of his sufficient grace. We've got to understand that simple biblical truth. Listen, salvation will always come and has come through unexpected means. He does not save us because we're good looking or because we're the world's best dad. He does not save you because of your strength, your good looks, your right family name, your heritage, the country you were born into or from. God could have won that battle with 30,000, 300, or just Gideon himself. He does not reduce the army in number because he's limited to working only with 300 men. There are too many for Israel to see clearly where the praise and glory should go when that victory comes. Church, this is why this truth is so important because his power is perfect in our weakness. All of the judges are unlikely heroes. Jerry Vines, when he was preaching through this a number of years ago, he called called this the book of God hitting straight licks with crooked sticks. This is a farmer hiding out turned valiant warrior because of God's work in his life. Reminded me of the apostle Paul. He prayed three times, pleaded. The word there is pleaded, begged God three times to remove this thorn that was plaguing him. But God said no. And Paul's testimony is that God said no to keep him from becoming what? Self-centered. To keep him from becoming conceited. We need to hear that truth as we walk with Christ. The same truth that Paul heard from the Lord was the truth we need today. God's grace, my grace is sufficient for you. For his power is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul would go on to say, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness. So that the power of Christ may rest on me. When it comes to salvation, repentance, and growing in grace and truth, that's where we find his strength. When prosperity is gone, when the sufficiency, self-sufficiency is removed and we understand we can no longer save ourselves, when the relics of our idol worship are torn down, when any claim I can make to my own salvation and my own goodness is gone, when all that I've put my hope and my trust in that is not true and right is gone, 
When my health is failing, my wealth is fleeting, my security is insecure, and my stability is unstable, what on earth am I left with? God. God. When he removes the prosperity, there is Jesus. And my treasure is in heaven. When he removes the idols, there is Jesus, the one who gave his life for me on the cross. When he convicts of sin, there is Jesus who paid for my sin. When he calls you to a task that is too big, there is Jesus in whom I am more than a conqueror because Christ has overcome. When he calls you to holiness, there is Jesus because he is holy, I too can be holy. There is Jesus and only Jesus. Which Paul wrote in his letter to the Corinthians, for he was crucified in weakness, but he lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we live with him by God's power. Our prayer today is less of me and more of thee.